This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And we are waiting at the corner of 8th and Logan in Denver. It's about 8 in the morning. A state patrolman sits behind the wheel of a black SUV. This is the governor's mansion, and Democrat John Hickenlooper is about to come out and start a long day pinballing around Arapahoe County in Colorado Springs, signing bills since the legislative session just ended. We will join him. Good morning. How are we doing? A pink tie hangs unknotted under his gray suit. In the day ahead, we'll dig into his politics and personal life, which he exposes in a new autobiography. It has made people wonder if he's running for something this election year, specifically if he wants to be Hillary Clinton's vice presidential pick. If this book was, going to, was supposed to be an audition to be a VP candidate, I mean, there's at least half that book I wouldn't have put in there. I put in warts and all, and there are a lot of very embarrassing things in that book that I don't think portray me in a very positive light. Case in point, he writes that his friends don't think he's a very good public speaker. It's so true. I go back and I say, well, you know, I've been doing this for like 10 years. Uh, don't you think I've gotten better as a public speaker? And they kind of look awkward and they say, well, you're authentic. There was that time in 2012. He was at a literacy event with his lieutenant governor. Uh, now I get to introduce that rising sex star. Um, <laughs> Symbol, I mean, symbol, not star. This, this might go down as one of my most difficult press conferences in the history of the office. Um, That's courtesy of KOA. Another flaw he reveals to us as we hit the road is that he's a terrible backseat driver, routinely questioning the turns patrolman Brian Keller makes. Ask Brian, because I can't ask him this, but you can ask him, don't you think I'm getting better? Uh, yes, I would agree. He's definitely, he's definitely gotten a lot better about that. Along for the ride, Hickenlooper's legislative liaison, Adam Zarin, who has loaded into the back of the truck copies of the bills the governor will sign and the engraved pens he'll sign them with. If there's a theme for the day, it's jobs. Bills to help veterans get them, one to create a new cybersecurity center in Colorado Springs that could employ up to 100 people, and the first signing at a manufacturer in Englewood is to support apprenticeships. First, on our way there, another burning question. Will he summon lawmakers back to the Capitol to address a budget maneuver they couldn't agree on? It was his top priority in the session that just ended. But in his new autobiography, Hickenlooper calls special sessions the legislative nuclear option. So far, he isn't sure if he'll call one. Well, I think we'd have to have some confidence that that both sides would be willing to you know, negotiate and compromise. We spent a lot of time working on the hospital provider fee. This ability to build transportation infrastructure is essentially what it is, but it's also, it it will help us invest in higher education, help us invest in K-12. But we couldn't get it done. So the hope is that, uh, you know, I'll spend the next week or two talking to both sides and trying to listen carefully to what their real concerns are and see if I can find a middle ground. This is one of those things where, It will take a significant compromise from both sides, and both sides will have a lot of, you know, pushback from their caucus and their their, their kind of core bedrock constituencies. Are you surprised by how entrenched the sides are on this issue? Because as we spoke throughout the session and even just before, you you seemed very optimistic that this could be achieved. Yeah, I am am surprised that it it didn't get done. just because it seems to me I don't see a lot of other options. 
if, if, if we feel that we have too much traffic and too much congestion, we've got to find the resources. And this is the single clearest place where that is, those, those resources would, could be made available. So Michael Fields, who's the state director for Americans for Prosperity, has written a piece pleading with you not to hold a special session. He says, Governor Hickenlooper would be spending tens of thousands of your dollars to pass legislation to take away even more of your money. Coloradans should say, thanks, but no thanks. And he argues that the state is in a fine financial position. What do you say? I mean, we are in a fine financial position, but he's obviously not traveling during rush hour and getting stuck in traffic. If you can't get a special session together, if Republicans won't nudge on this issue, they're in control of the Senate, um, what are the alternatives in your mind for transportation and education? Well, as we used to say, we're between a rock and a hard place. There's no good answer here. And if we can't get the two sides to, together in the, around the hospital provider fee, we've got to find some way to have resources to, to expand our transportation system because we're, we continue to grow. Every year, the, the traffic gets worse and worse. People are strangling on their own success, right? They're, I mean, you can't get anywhere. So, and it's not just that. I mean, higher ed, we're going to very rapidly run out of the ability to support higher ed at all. I mean, we've already cut it by about 50% over the last 20 years. So uh, if, if we don't do the hospital provider fee, we'll have to go to the ballot with a Tabor initiative or something, try and, and put a, a Tabor sunset or a Tabor uh, pause for 10 years uh, just so that we can get some of this infrastructure built. I don't, I, again, I don't know how else you're going to do it. We arrive at the first stop, Micron Corporation, a Swiss firm that makes machines and tools. Before he gets out of the car, Hickenlooper considers a last-minute wardrobe change. I am going to put a tie. No, no, what the heck with Hard making decisions early in the morning. <laughs> All right, let's go. Inside, the crowd includes four students from the Cherry Creek schools. They'll intern here for the summer with an eye towards becoming apprentices. This is Selena Alekovich and Simon Richardson. I've been very interested in mechanical engineering ever since I was a little kid. So this was a perfect opportunity for me. And also, just what they do is really amazing. Like, they make machines that make stuff really fast. And I think that's fascinating. So, yeah. I think that it's very interesting that you can look at something and you have this tangible proof. You can say, I did that. The bill the governor will sign makes state money available to companies that take on apprentices. On-the-job training that the governor says will help Colorado's workforce match the jobs available. He was inspired by a recent trip to Switzerland, which has embraced the apprenticeship model. Two of the lawmakers who crafted the legislation are here. They're both Republicans. Hickenlooper says jobs bills are often where the parties find common ground. Now we get to make a law. It's good having a long name when you sign with multiple pens. He invites the kids and sponsors and others who worked on the legislation to come close for a photo op. That's a law. To that long last name, Hickenlooper, he writes in his new book that it sounds like an amusement park ride or a brand of kazoo. And kids made fun of him for it when he was little, calling him Chicken Looper, Poopin Scooper. That has continued. Critics call him Frackenlooper for his support of the oil and gas industry. The governor came to Colorado as a petroleum geologist, was laid off when prices crashed, opened a brewery in Denver's Lodo neighborhood, which was down and out at the time. He then became mayor and governor. 
I ask him about that unusual path when we get back in the car on the way to Colorado Springs, where he'll spend most of the day. From reading your new book, The Opposite of Woe, My Life in Beer and Politics, I generally get the sense that at each stage in your life, you were surprised to be where you were. You didn't expect to become a petroleum geologist. You thought you might be an artist, even a journalist. You didn't expect to become a beer brewer or mayor, or perhaps even governor. Quoting here from the book, So it went for my careers in business and politics, forever pegged as the goof with a snowball's chance. Even my own mother wouldn't invest in my first business. Isn't that just something successful people say after they've made it? You know, I never expected to be here. I think a lot of people do say that, um, who are successful. But a lot of people, you know, their, their ambitions when they're young, they really are confident, and they feel that they're going to succeed in these grand ambitions and they create grand ambitions I never really created grand ambitions and I don't know some uh, again I'm sure there are other successful people out there that kind of were you know successful almost in spite of themselves but you know Governor Bill Ritter once called me the accidental governor the accidental mayor because I never I mean you no one who aspired to actually be a mayor or a governor to hold elected office would have never done those stupid things that I did through high school, through college, and and through my early years. They just wouldn't have done it. You took your mother to see the X-rated film Deep Throat, for instance. You appeared once on the talk show Donahue as an eligible bachelor. You tried to write an episode of the TV drama Moonlighting. And you were turned down by Banks 32 times when you were trying to start your brewery in Lower Downtown. Let me say, after you finally did, you got a DUI and, uh, as a result, started a designated driver program. Yeah, those are all true. I mean, I went, you know, with my mom. You know, I'd been at college. I was the youngest kid, so my mom had been alone, uh, home alone for several months in the house. And they just started doing the rating system for films. And so my old friend Jed Rulon Miller wanted to hear, you know, wanted to see what a uh, a next movie was like. So he and I were going to go, and I got home, and my mom had cooked this big meal. When I told her I was going to have to leave right after the meal, she said, well, that's, what are you doing? I said, well, we're going to go see the next movie, this 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 movie. And she said, well, she didn't say it. I, I looked at her and said, well, do you, you want to go? And she looked and said, yes. And I was shocked. I didn't know what to do. So we went. My mom was, you know, just barely five foot. Uh, and so we walk into this movie theater to see Deep Throat. And, I mean, the first scene was was kind of raunchy. I looked at my mother and I said, I think we should leave. My mom says, you know, my mom grew up in the Depression. Once she paid for a ticket, she was going to use it. And she said, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. It was, it was the first time I really realized how lonely she was. I mean, when I was growing up, she was always very busy, had her own life, uh, you know, raising four kids by herself. But when we were all gone, she missed us. And, and you know, that, 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 that she would go to an ex-movie. I still beat myself up about that. What was I thinking? You do get very personal in this book about your dating life, the end of your first marriage, and your father's death when you were eight. Your dad died of intestinal cancer, but your mother didn't tell you he was sick? We knew he was sick. No one talked about it. Uh, and in those days, uh, he would spend long periods of time uh, in, his, in the bedroom with the door closed and we want to go in there and, and you know if I was that sick I'd want my son to be in every single day I'd want to talk to him I'd want him to hear every thought I was thinking but but for whatever reason they they were trying to protect us from that 
uh, and so we never really, I mean, he kind of disappeared, even though he was up there in that bedroom, he kind of disappeared from the active life that we were all living, and it was almost like, it, it was, the house was almost a little bit haunted. He was there, but he wasn't there. We couldn't go talk to him. Sometimes your mom would walk down with, with bloody sheets. You, you saw that. Yeah, we, um, I, I mean, every night he had a lot of infections um, and, and was passing blood. So he would, uh, well, each night he'd wake up in a cold sweat and the sheets would be soaked. And so my mom would get up and kind of gingerly roll him over halfway, get the old sheet up and then put a new sheet down. She'd do that two or three times a night. Hickenlooper's own son is 13, and the governor says the job means he's missed important moments. Soccer and baseball games, for instance. But some time is sacrosanct. I demand that I get home with my son, Teddy, uh, at least two nights a week, and we we shoot for three nights a week. We put the conversation on hold. The governor has a call with a producer from Late Night with Seth Meyers, ahead of his first late-night appearance. So let's take a break and then rejoin our day in the life. Ahead, why this former beer brewer has misgivings about another mind-altering substance, marijuana. We dig into his thinking on hydraulic fracturing. And what's the hardest part of the job? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We spent last Friday with Governor John Hickenlooper from 8 a.m. to just after 8 p.m., as he signed bills, gave speeches, fundraised for Senator Michael Bennett, and at the end of the day accepted an award for leading the creation of the state's first-ever water plan. We're in Colorado Springs now, and El Paso County, and we've gone from Denver, where Democrats are in the majority, to a place where Republicans are in the majority. Do you ever look around and think, I wonder if that person voted for me? Well, it's after the election now, so pretty much everyone says they voted for me. Um, that's just the way the, the way the game works. But, you know, an awful lot of people vote just on a party line. And I think that's one of the negative sides of, of this uh, two-party political system we have. But it's just what it is. And I know that a lot of people here voted against me. Uh, I've always tried to, to focus on, on the places where people agree rather than where our differences are. So when I do see someone, and, and oftentimes they'll bring up a, a, an issue or, or express why they voted against me, I love to go towards that, that, that problem and, and really listen to them and try to hear as clearly as I can what their, what their real concern is. We don't have enough of that in, in, in politics today where people get a chance to kind of hear what someone's thinking. The morning is a whirlwind. He signs a bill to help people with disabilities get rides to the doctor in something other than an ambulance. Then it's off to an event marking Mental Health Awareness Month. Hickenlooper touches briefly on the subject, then throws it open for questions. One of them sounds familiar. Will you be Hillary Clinton's running mate? The list of her contemplated vice presidential candidates is much longer than what people are saying. And I think I'm much closer to the bottom than I am the top, which, which actually is, is probably a good thing for my mental health. Uh, you know, if someone calls you and asks you to run for that kind of an office, it would be hard to say no, right? It's, it's a, your country is asking you to serve. But at the same time, I would be deeply, deeply disappointed. And I have to, and I have to look at it hard. I've got a, you know, my son graduated from, high, from middle school yesterday. He's going to go into East High in Denver uh, uh, starting next year. He's not going to want to go to Washington, so I'd be, have to be flying and just, I mean, it would, it, it, the timing's bad. Just, although you can't say that with the president, you know, the, 
the, the, the president, a presidential candidate calls, but it would be hard. And I, I will tell you, honest to God, no media here, my heart of hearts, I hope she doesn't call. Of course, there were media there. It's lunchtime. We're in Colorado Springs, and this beer man turned politician decides to swing by a brewery he used to own, Phantom Canyon. So this is the this used to be the old Cheyenne Hotel, three-story historic building, the only registered historic landmark in downtown Colorado Springs that I bought literally, you know, a week before it was going to be demolished. This is where the railroad workers would stay overnight. Uh, it's two blocks from the station down the hill. Uh, and so the, uh, the Santa Fe and the Denver and Santa Fe, uh, the Denver Rio Grande, their, their train workers would spend the night here. And this is a, there were little teeny shoebox rooms for the hotel. He and his business partners bought the property and opened the brew pub in 1992. I love when people come down here at the top of the first floor on the front corner of the building, there's this wonderful terracotta Indian head, like as if from the Indian head nickel. Uh, and it's been a landmark of this building for many, many decades. Inside is another landmark for the governor. He's eager to show it off. Embedded in the stone bar is a fossil fish. It strikes me that not many people inside seem to notice the governor is in the house, like hostess Savannah Howarth. Um, I knew he was coming in, but I did not recognize him. Do more people recognize you, or do more people not recognize you? Well, in the old days, if I came into one of my restaurants, everybody recognized me because I was always coming in. Um, I think... These days, less people probably recognize me than back when I was mayor of Denver, just because the mayor of Denver is on TV all the time. And the governor does more of, their, more of the work behind the scenes. So not on TV, not on radio as often, and therefore a little less recognized. Not a bad thing. As he sits here in a brewery, not drinking, mind you, I steer the conversation to substances that alter the mind. There are a number of people who point to your embracing of beer and of alcohol and see it as a contradiction uh, with your hesitation around legalized marijuana. How do you square embracing one substance and not wholeheartedly embracing the other? When teenagers uh, indulge in high THC marijuana, whether it's through edibles or whatever, there are a lot of the top neurosurgeon or brain scientists in the country that look at this and say, they're going to lose a sliver of, of their long-term memory every time they use it. They don't say that about alcohol. Uh, not that alcohol isn't dangerous, but as a, as a widespread, you know, something's used on a widespread basis uh, based on what these scientists tell me. Again, I don't know what it is, but they say that that danger to long-term memory is, is significant. And you know, most of us, we get, when we get to be my age, your, your memories are a big part of, of, of your joy in every day. And yet, if you look at deaths, there are far more deaths because of drunk driving, for instance, or alcohol poisoning than marijuana. So we have dramatically reduced the drunk driving deaths and will continue to put money into reducing drunk driving deaths. There's no way I want to defend them in any, in, in any sense. But the bottom line is people were using marijuana uh, on a widespread basis. And, and I certainly think that the this experiment we're doing in, 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 in having it uh, legalized for adults, you know, isn't, isn't as bad as, like, as what a lot of people thought. But there are more risks to it than saying that, that adults can drink beer, right? We later looked it up, and there is significant evidence that drinking as a teen can have long-term effects on memory and other brain functions. 
The tight window for lunch closes, and it's on to the next event. But not before someone does recognize the governor. A large party of teachers celebrating graduation realizes who's in their midst. They snap a few photos, he thanks them for their service, and it's back in the car. At the last event, which was uh, to mark Mental Health Awareness Month, the person who introduced you opened the forum to questions from the audience and and said, be kind. How often do you encounter people who deeply disagree with you and who aren't just lawmakers, but who are, you know, potentially voters? Do you you worry sometimes that the office can be cocooning? Well, any... Any job when you get to the higher levels of decision-making, right? When you're in a business, if you're the CEO or the senior vice president, you do get insulated from what the rest of the world thinks sometimes. And part of my team's responsibility is to, to make sure I do get out there and people have a chance to ask me questions or uh, raise concerns. You know, that's part of democracy, right? That you, the elected leaders have got to be able to hear what people's concerns are probably doesn't happen enough. The next order of business is cybersecurity. He tours a company in downtown Colorado Springs called Route 9B. It was just ranked the world's top provider of cybersecurity services by an industry publication. And then Hickenlooper signs a bill to help create a national cybersecurity center in a now empty manufacturing plant. This center will work with the private and public sectors. Have you looked at how vulnerable the state of Colorado is, the the state as an entity, to a cyber attack? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we are vulnerable. We know that. Um, You know, all the universities and colleges, all the Department of Transportation, Department of Human Services, all the state agencies, we're probably being attacked several thousand times a day where people are trying to gain access to our databases, gain access to our systems. And we're you know, we're defending them. We've got people full-time. That that's all they do. And because we have Spacecom as part of Northern Command here in Colorado Springs, we have companies like Route 9B that are the, the international leaders in cybersecurity. They're offering to help set up a whole training program, first in Colorado Springs, but then in Denver and Fort Collins, where kids start out in seventh grade understanding code and cybersecurity. And it's fascinating, right? And it's, and it's real life. And it's kind of scary for kids. They'll get a kick out of it. Show them something really fun where where when they finish high school, they can make $75,000 a year. It's uh, my pleasure to introduce uh, our great governor, uh, who's been instrumental uh, in uh, bringing this... There are a lot of faces at this cyber bill signing. The former state attorney general, now mayor of Colorado Springs, John Southers, a gaggle of lawmakers, local TV reporters... Hickenlooper moves comfortably among them, no sign he actually can't recognize faces, which we then talk about in the car. Well, face blindness is a true medical condition, and there are several different ways different doctors think that it occurs. In my case, I didn't get glasses until I was at the end of my second grade. Um, And if you ever see those little teeny kids, three-year-olds or four-year-olds with big glasses on, evidently your brain is developing the ability to see faces in detail and categorize and, 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 and organize all those subtleties of expression in your brain when you're two years old, three years old, four years old, five years old, six years old. So if you just see a blur at that age, you lose that ability. And forget about government. Face blindness, when you're in the restaurant business, is a catastrophe because someone comes in every two weeks and you have no idea who they are. 
Uh, and so you just you, you learn several compensations. It's like, it's, it's like being dyslexic, which I'm also mildly dyslexic. And, and dyslexics also have compensations. But with face blindness, you always appear happy to see people. And you always try to uh, act as if you know them in case you do know them. And then you really listen to what they're saying. Because as soon as you hear someone's voice or they, or they say something, then you remember who they are. My brother, I hadn't seen my brother in a year and a half. And he grew a little goatee. And he came into the wine coop one time and was sitting there at the bar for, for 10 minutes. I was right beside him. And I, he didn't say anything. And I, I didn't notice. The wine coop is the brewery he used to own in downtown Denver. I looked at him a couple times and thought, you know, I thought I kind of maybe knew him, but I didn't even think about it. So just the goatee threw you on him. Yeah, and I hadn't seen him in a year, and he was out of context. And, and all those things help you if you are face blind. Earlier, the governor talked about meeting everyday people and how that becomes less possible as you rise higher and higher in office. But the next bill signing offers him a chance. At the invitation of a state senator, Republican Owen Hill of Colorado Springs, a liquor store owner has come to talk to the governor. Paul Amber, owner of Steins and Vines, wants Hickenlooper to sign a bill that allows more grocery store chains to sell alcohol, albeit gradually. I hate to say it, it's probably going to be inedible that this happens. But with this bill, at least we can phase it in. People can adjust their business models. I think think this bill, you didn't get as good a deal as you could have gotten anyway. Also, I mean, I think it was done in five days and just kind of rammed through. It might have went through in five days formally, but informally, I think there was a lot more behind that. Oh, I'm sure there's a lot of of foundation work done before it ever got into the legislature. That's a fair point. So, yeah, I'd appreciate your support with it. And... uh, Vote your conscience? No. <laughs> I always try to. Thank you. You bet. That's a very pleasure meeting you. Good luck. Hickenlooper is considering a veto. No matter what he decides, someone's going to be unhappy. It makes me wonder what he likes least about being governor. I think the, the constant relentless, it's like uh, walking pneumonia is a low-key pressure that, that there's always something that's important that you've got to be doing. And, and, and that there's just never enough time to do everything at the level, at, the, at a good, as good a level as you'd like to be done. When you look back at your years in office, is there a time when you think, if I had been able to pay more attention, the outcome would have been better of, of a particular, I don't know, piece of legislation or agenda item? I can't think of very many places where I think we made the wrong decision. I do think that we made a number of times the right decision, but we didn't do a very good job of communicating it, why it was important, why we were making that decision. Obviously, universal background checks for gun purchases was a classic example. I mean, we weren't trying to take anybody's gun away. We were just trying to make sure that every time someone purchases a gun, there's a background check to make sure that we're not putting guns into the hands of dangerous people. But you're saying that the pace of the office meant that you didn't pay as much attention to the communication strategy as you as you otherwise might have? Yes, exactly. That sometimes you you don't have the time to really think it through and get the language right and and process and get the right people involved and connected. So you come out in a way that's you know, that's bad. We learned as we followed the governor that a number appears at the top of his iPhone calendar. The number of days left in his administration. It was 9.63 the day we were with him last week. We'll pick up after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. 
We spent last Friday with Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper as he hopscotched the front range signing bills, giving speeches and fundraising. Beyond guns, which we talked about before the break, another sticky issue Governor Hickenlooper faces is fracking. His new autobiography offers some insight into his thinking. He writes, fracking gets a terrible rap, mainly because the industry is terrible at public relations. Continuing, I don't think we will ever be able to allay the concerns some people have about fracking. It struck me that inherent in those words is the idea that people who are opposed to fracking, in your mind, simply don't understand it. If they had all the facts, they'd feel differently. And yet, there are so many opposed to fracking who have lots of facts and still feel that it's the wrong choice for their community. Well, obviously, there are lots of people that uh, have all the facts and are still opposed to fracking. Where we come down and, and differ, it's a question of private property. And so far, the courts are ruling in your favor. Well, I think that the courts have to obey the law, and that's what the law says. It's what the Constitution says. I think the, the, the next big issue is obviously they want to change the, the Constitution so that it would allow government to, you know, or force government to take away that, that, that private property of people. And I think that would then go to the Supreme Court. And I think we'd probably lose, and the state would have to, to pay compensation uh, to the, all those oil companies who you know had leases or those individuals who had leases, and I've said all along, if you want, if you want, don't want to have drilling around communities, the state is willing to kind of partner with those communities. Communities put up money, the state will put up some money, and let's compensate the the, the mineral rights owners. It's time to leave Colorado Springs and head back to Denver. There's still more on his schedule, and the drive back gives us time to talk about one more divisive issue. If I've sensed a theme today in the remarks you've made at Bill Signings, it's something of a Colorado exceptionalism, that Colorado has forged a path in any number of ways, in job training, in cybersecurity. Um, I think there are a lot of your fellow Democrats who would say that that Colorado has the opportunity to forge another path, and that's with a single-payer health care system. What's been called Colorado Cares and will be on the ballot come November. Um, but you, you've been largely opposed to that. Why don't you see it as a place where the state could uh, put a unique imprimatur on policy? Partly just because, and I have tremendous respect for the objectives uh, that that you know Amendment sixty nine is trying to achieve. Uh, and I think single-payer, in many ways, is a much more efficient uh, delivery system. But we just spent the last five years really working hard to implement uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. And to kind of throw all that out and, and, and start on a whole new system seems just impossibly difficult. What do you say to people who think you're a dino, a dino, a Democrat in name only, when they look at your views on oil and gas development, your lack of support for um, single-payer, your embracing of business? I've always been a Democrat. My sisters and my brother, all Democrats. I mean, if you actually look at most of the the policies that we support, we expanded Medicaid. I mean, I don't think there were very many uh, Republicans around the country that did that. Uh, I've supported uh, mass transit uh, and, you know, been a uh, climate change advocate 
since I first got into public service long before that. In, in terms of education, I've been a champion of teachers and you know trying to figure out how to get education systems to work better. Most of those aren't necessarily a Democratic or Republican position. Uh, if anything, I guess I'd say I'm pragmatic. A pragmatist who still engages in politics. He stops at a fundraiser for U.S. Senator Michael Bennett, a fellow Democrat who's up for re-election. Bennett was Hickenlooper's chief of staff when he was mayor. Then, the governor's last official event of the day at a gallery in Denver's Santa Fe Arts District. The governor is getting an award for leading the creation of the state's first water plan. It's been 12 hours since we left the governor's mansion. He hasn't had dinner yet. And he points out this is his seventh day in a row maintaining this kind of schedule. Bill signing time after the legislative session ends is like that. Hickenlooper is 64. He told me he's not a great sleeper. And so how does he keep up the energy? Well, part you think the Beatles song, When I'm 64, you know, the world's changed since they recorded that song. And 64 is the new 54, or maybe the new 44, I'd like to argue. But, you know, in the old Denver Post, they had printed above the building, the doorway of the building, it said, "'Tis a privilege to live in Colorado." And when I first saw that, when I first came to Colorado, I'd been here maybe three weeks as a geologist, and I said, that's so amazing. So it's been in my mind ever since. You know, when I get tired, you know, this is a job where it's my chance to give back to Colorado. It's, it's been such a privilege, such a gift. Uh, I could never have had the life I, I live in any other state. So, you know, sometimes I do get tired or frustrated, but I just think back. It is a privilege to live in Colorado. And, it, you know, I love it. I love not every minute of every day, as you've seen, but I love it. Governor, thank you for letting us spend the day with you. My pleasure. Colorado's Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper. See photos from our day with him at cprnews.org. There you can also read an excerpt from his new book, The Opposite of Woe. And we've linked to the poem he uses to woo people he wants in his administration. I love people who harness themselves, an ox to a heavy cart, who pull like water buffalo with massive patience, who strain in the mud and the muck to move things forward, who do what has to be done again and again. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Werner. When Wayne Gilbert learned he had Parkinson's disease, one of the first things he did was write a poem. Art became Gilbert's escape. He lives in Denver, also dabbles in theater and dance, and a few years ago he started working with prisoners work that will be on display this weekend when he speaks at the first Colorado Prison Arts Festival. We spoke last year. Wayne, thank you for being with us. I'm very happy to be here. We're going to get to your uh, prison poetry project in a bit, but you were diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2005, and you wrote uh, a piece called Toxic Psalm. Will you share it with us? I will happily. Toxic Psalm. On being diagnosed with PD... This poison inside me, blessed to go off before, that's all, folks. My body unloads its chemistry, peels off its neuroattention before my brain can lock and load. This is my body unplugged. Unraveled synaptic vines, spilling, sprawled, unsortably unwired. This charged chemistry is failing beginning to go solo. Here's how a body makes up its own mind. Here's how a body decides for itself. Here's how a body takes over its own story. 
No one called Crime Stoppers. No one worried I was a genetic suicide bomb. This body has a hole punctured in its ozone. This body is experiencing ice cap meltdown. This body has toasted magnetic codes. This body is a flashlight whose battery is dying in the darkest post-glacial night. This body is about to be sealed off from me. The uh, sense of powerlessness there and that something else is taking over is terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. It reminds me of that old Edgar Allan Poe story I can remember reading in middle school about being buried alive and, and waking up and not being able to sort of scratch your way out. That's a little overdramatic, but... Uh, is it, though? Maybe it's not. When you, when you are the one learning, you have PD, as you call it, Parkinson's, Parkinson's. disease. Well, definitely emotionally it, and psychologically, it is not too dramatic. No. Um, the Porky Pig, <laughs> which, which you do brilliantly, uh, also tells me that you are dealing with this, with a sense of humor as well. Well, I don't know how else to deal with most anything except to sort of laugh at it at least sometime. Or maybe there's a certain absurdity to existence, generally speaking, disease in particular, that um, I think one just has to laugh a little bit at. I'm a big fan of Samuel Beckett, hmm. and uh, he loved um, the early Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton films. Oh, I didn't that, know that. Yeah, that in a way were quite violent and disturbing, and in another way hilarious, and I think of it kind of that way. Will you remind us of what is possible with Parkinson's? I mean, what, what the arc could be for you? Well, there's a host of symptoms no one has them all. Most of us have a different combination of them. It's a progressive degenerative disease. I, and, and using the word progressive is, is always another humorous uh, <laughs> I've aspect. never thought of it that way, but yeah. to call it progress seems yes. absurd. It does. It's totally absurd. So it progresses at different speeds in different ways for different people. So some people will be diagnosed and within a year or two, um, they'll be quite debilitated. I don't have too much of a tremor, and most of what I have is pretty well controlled by acupuncture. Would you say that it is uh, progressing slowly, quickly? For me? Yeah. Oh, slowly, thank goodness. Uh -huh. Yeah. So the prognosis as such, that for me, is better than for, for many of my fellow parkies, as we often call each other. Parkies? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can say it. You can't. I can't. Okay. <laughs> I withdraw... My utterance of that. Uh, you know, also in the, in the poem you read us, which you wrote just after the diagnosis, mm -hmm. Toxic Psalm, there is a global scale to it. You, you talk, it's almost like uh, climate change yeah, I was in using, your body or something. I, I was using metaphors from climate change because my, my entire world was altered in a way that is quite analogous to the planet being altered by climate change. I mean, from the inside out, that's how it feels. My personal, individual, physical world had changed that much, or so it felt hearing the actual words Parkinson's disease. Is it true that the disease eventually cost you your job as a college professor? Well, I couldn't continue working full-time. One of my symptoms is uh, extreme fatigue, Hmm. And I just didn't have the energy to keep teaching full-time, especially the way I 
teach? Teaching literature. I teach literature and have taught literature and writing and part-time educational psychology uh, at the university level as well. But I like to jump on chairs and do little dances and that is when you're teaching. When it's, I was it's a very teaching, physical experience. Very physical experience, yeah. It requires a, a lot of energy for me to teach. I'm not a lecturer or a... a Bloviator. I am definitely not that. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I may have a student or two <laughs> who would say so. But when I really started to notice in the classroom, I could not stand up. My legs are where my symptoms show up um, a lot. So finally, someone, probably my wife, convinced me that I should get a stool so that I could sit down and a, and a music stand. And when I first made the adjustment to using those items in the classroom, I felt somehow less that I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I, 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 it wasn't part of my shtick. So you still teach, but on a much smaller scale. Much smaller scale. Very part-time. Some might call your work beat poetry, but you don't like that term much. I don't like that term at all. At all? <laughs> at okay. all, yeah. I'm, I like beat poetry, don't get me wrong. And I certainly wouldn't say that I'm not influenced by beat poetry. But I didn't read beat poetry seriously until well after I was writing. When did you start writing poetry? I started in uh, my 20s, but I didn't really get serious about it. And I never shared it until I was 50. Oh, and, and how old were you when the diagnosis came? 55. 55. Yeah. So very interesting timing. I've always thought of myself first as a jazz poet, not a beat poet. And I was more influenced by the long lines of jazz and the rhythms of free, really freestyle jazz than I was by the images and rhythms of beat poetry. You have worked with a Denver jazz saxophonist named Charles Rourke. Yes, I have. Yes. Um, and I just want to play a little bit of your collaboration. Splashed! Cooled on the cosmic safe face sunrise. You met him at busking in town? Charles is probably one of the finest musicians in Colorado who is unknown unless you walk over the bridge outside the Pepsi Center after a Nuggets game or a concert there. And he is he's a master improviser. He's probably one of the most overall creative people I've ever met. So he really taught me about space and and rhythm and breath. Word, beat, space, voice, native tongue, tonic, trong, the Denver jazz musician Chuck Rourke, along with the Denver poet Wayne Gilbert, were talking to Gilbert about his work and uh, how it relates to his experience with Parkinson's disease to this project at the Sterling Correctional Facility. A former student of yours who's a teacher in the prison's education program asked you to come and read your poetry during a graduation ceremony yes. where inmates receive their GEDs. And uh, what type of reaction did you get to your poetry? Uh, it was astonishing. It was absolutely astonishing. We were in the, in the visitor's center, which is, reminds me of a, of a middle school cafeteria. 
and some chairs were set up. There were 16 graduates and a handful of family members and a handful of staff, and I, they had a podium set up. And I decided to step out from the podium and try to hold the the paper with the poem on it in my hand, which is sometimes difficult because it does shake a little bit. I've performed and read for a lot of different groups and taught for over 35 years, and I can't remember too often a group being quite as attentive. We would meet eye to eye. They would nod. They were listening. Why do you think poetry is powerful in their context? Everybody's trapped in a prison to some degree or another. I don't want to get too metaphorical because prison is a nasty place to be. And yet everyone is kind of in a prison. Parkinson's is a kind of prison. And to write your way out without leaving, I think, is what poetry can do. You can find free spaces, free open spaces, not just remember, but actually create new possibilities, discover and create new possibilities for yourself, even if it's only a poem. That's really something. Hmm. The idea of poetry is creating space in an environment where space is really limited and it's closed off. I suppose there's a transcendent quality to that. I think there is. Uh, Let's talk about movement now, because you're not just a poet. You are also uh, something of a dancer. Though This has come more recently to you. Yes, it has. And you co-founded a dance class for Parkinson's patients called Reconnect With Your Body, hour-long classes held at the Apex Community Center in Arvada. Losing yourself in the movement, in the music, in your breath. You had never danced before. And what is the benefit for those with Parkinson's? The benefits are many. As you can perhaps tell from my poem, one of the things that happens with Parkinson's, as well as some other chronic conditions, is that one begins to feel not in charge of his own body. When you go to dance and the music is played and the teacher is leading you, there's a way that you are carried by the music. And suddenly the stiffness, the being trapped, the, the locked, being locked up, which is what uh, Parkinson's is called when you, when you freeze, um, disappears or diminishes considerably. Gosh, it's so similar to the work you're doing in the prison. It's a way of being free when you, when you can't be, <laughs> which is not a contradiction. It's just the way it is. I'll note that um, this isn't the only dance program for Parkinson's patients in Colorado, something called PD of the Rockies as well. And one of our producers recently attended a class of yours. She spoke with 51-year-old Tina Shainer, Uh, Tina, who has Parkinson's, drives from Keensburg every week to attend. It takes away all your anxieties, all your things going on, and you don't even think about having Parkinson's. You think about being free and dancing again, and movement is back. What struck me most when I first started dancing was how it focused on what I could do or doing things I never even thought of doing as opposed to all the things I'm, I've lost or can't do or am losing. That's what the arts are for. I, th- I think the, the value of creativity is vastly overlooked. When I'm dancing, when I'm making a poem, when I'm acting in a play, I can forget that I have Parkinson's for a little while. And I'm making something new and special that wasn't there before. 
you can read uh, more about your work in theater because you're multi-talented, sir, uh, at our <laughs> at our website, cprnews.org. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been my pleasure. Denver poet Wayne Gilbert, we spoke last year. The Prison Arts Festival runs through Sunday at Regis University. And that's the show for today, with special thanks to Rachel Estabrook, who produced our Day in the Life of the Governor. I'm Ryan Warner, Colorado Public Radio News.